Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 years of Nitro. We've got a special treat for you this week as I sat down for an extended interview with the author of Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. Now, this is a book about the Nitro era of WCW that has uh, come out just in the past month or so, and it is uh, getting rave reviews. You've probably seen if you're kind of at all in the online wrestling marketplace, especially anywhere where we trade nostalgia uh, for the WCW days, you will have seen a lot of people talking about this. Uh, Brian at WCW Worldwide gave it a rave review. I believe Sean Ross of Fightful.com has some wonderful things to say about it. Really, just kind of anywhere I've seen anyone talk about this book, all anyone can say is this may be the definitive work uh, on WCW and maybe the Monday Night Wars in general. I, I really, and uh, I'd like to add my voice to that. I think this is an excellent book. Uh, and I was, as I was about halfway through, I reached out to Guy Evans, the author. I invited him to come on the show. He's been very gracious in the past. He was actually the one who set up. Uh, my earlier interview with Neil Pruitt, uh, former WCW producer, uh, and and Guy and Neil actually are the co-hosts of Neil Pruitt's uh, Secrets of WCW uh, Nitro podcast. That's actually, uh, I believe, uh, kind of an outcropping of their relationship in, in discussing the book uh, was that they decided to start that podcast. So they are kind of uh, just a good team. I uh, encourage you to listen to their podcast. I definitely encourage you to read the book. Uh, we're going to plug it a few times during the interview, and I'm going to certainly mention during the interview where you can find it, but I'm going to tell you right now that it is at wcwnitrobook.com. You can also check it out on Amazon. You can get a digital copy if you're into reading it on your e-reader. Uh, you can I know there's a way of buying a digital copy to read on your iPad as well. Uh, I bought the soft, uh, I keep saying soft cover, the paperback edition. <laughs> I bought the paperback edition, uh, and my version came with a, a additional complimentary audiobook. Uh, which was nice because I was able to read the paperback kind of when I had the opportunity. And then when I was in bed, my wife was trying to go to sleep and I had to turn the lights off. I was able to switch over to the iPad and read it on there as well. Uh, so again, enough shilling for the book. I, I really think the book's great, but I don't need to shill because I think this interview uh, you're going to hear with Guy Evans will illustrate all the reasons I think this book is is so good and worth your time uh, and your money and your attention. Uh, I will apologize a little bit. My audio is not uh, up to snuff. I'm I'm not exactly sure what I did. So if you notice that my audio sounds a little tinny or echoey, uh, apologies for that. Now, Guy's audio sounds great because he recorded it on his end and uploaded it for me, which was very generous of him. That was something I kind of sprung in him last minute, and he was very unflappable, very helpful. He went ahead and did that. So, uh, Guy, if you're listening, much thanks for that. But anyway, without further ado, I do want to turn it over to this interview uh, thanks again for listening to another episode, and I hope you enjoy, and I hope you check out Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. The book is Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. Uh, the podcast, Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro, uh, the author of that book and the co-host of that podcast, Guy Evans, is my guest today, and he uh, joins us here at the show. I think you'll hear right from the beginning, uh, as soon as he starts talking, that he is from the heart of Flair Country, so I can I can certainly understand <laughs> how he is a, a loyal WCW fan. Guy, how are you doing this evening? Well, Tim, I think it's appropriate at this time to reveal that for the past year, actually, I've been perpetrating an elaborate fraud on uh, Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. You see, I've been putting on this British accent for the best part of a year, 
And uh, little do you know that I'm actually uh, actually from South Carolina. It just so happens that I've done this accent for so long now that I can't uh, shut it off. So hopefully people can bear with me on that one. Yeah. <laughs> now, creating a work uh, that just works everyone and kind of leads nowhere and then eventually just sort of works yourself into a shoot, there's really nothing more <laughs> WCW than that. So I think you're really living the dream here. Well, well, now now you put it like that. I think uh, I think you're onto something there, especially when uh, we get into the to the later years of WCW. Especially, I think you're right. <laughs> so, uh, what leaves a gentleman like yourself? Kind of, let's start before the book, before uh, the modern reminiscing era of WCW that I think we're kind of all a part of now. Uh, what what was your history with the company? Sort of your growing up. Were you a wrestling fan as a child? Uh, how far back does this this obsession go for you? <laughs> Well, I think, uh, like many other young people, you know, during the, the mid to late nineties, I, I was a fan of pro wrestling and actually followed both of the, the, the major organizations, WCW and the WWF. And, uh, when WCW went away, that was quite honestly the extent of my interest in wrestling by and large. Um, I, you know, I stuck through the invasion storyline in 2001, uh, the, the NWO actually coming into WWF as, a, as an entity in uh, 2002. And I think it was somewhere around that time, I think like many other people, uh, not only who are fans of wrestling, but but fans of other sort of forms of entertainment, you know, you move on, you you uh, grow up, uh, <laughs> perhaps you uh, sort of take on other interests, take on other hobbies and so on. And to be completely honest with you, Tim, it wasn't until, bizarrely enough, uh, the short-lived reintroduction or attempted uh, reintroduction or reignition of the uh, Monday Night Wars, and I'm perhaps putting that uh, sort of with inverted commas there, in 2010 – which was when, uh, if I'm sure you'll recall and people listening will recall, you know, TNA had that uh, sort of uh, very abrupt run on Monday nights where they were going up against the, the WWE at the time. Right. And, you know, that was the time where, for whatever reason, I, I started to think a little bit about wrestling again. And I don't particularly recall um, how I found out about that. It could have been, you know, a friend sending me an email and saying, you know, look at this, uh, Hulk Hogan and so on, uh, uh, back in the picture and doing something. And it just kind of got me thinking about, uh, WCW again and remembering sort of how closely I followed it and, um, and how much, uh, you know, I enjoyed, uh, you know, wrestling in general back then as a, as a young person. And, uh, not to go on and on here, but I think, you know, that sort of led to, um, myself checking out some of the other accounts that have been produced on WCW, the various documentaries and, and books and, and articles and so on. I mean, obviously people know that this is a time period that's been dissected extremely thoroughly. Um, I think prior to this book coming out, not to sound presumptuous, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Tim, but I think prior to this book coming out, uh, sort of the general assumption was there was nothing left to kind of say about this subject or about this this time period. And I think hopefully my my book has had something to say about that. Um, but uh, but just to return to your question, it was around that time, as I said, that I, I started checking out some of these other accounts. And there were quite a few questions that as someone who followed it so closely back then, personally, I didn't feel had been adequately answered. And there were a number of things that... You know, I, I thought someone really needs to, to look into this stuff and see if perhaps there's a, a you know a richer uh, sort of deeper story at play. 
And it wasn't until sort of late 2014, early 2015 that I decided, you know, hey, if no one else is is going to sort of um, approach this story from the angle that I think would be um, an interesting one, uh, or a different one at least, uh, then perhaps I should give it a shot. And, you know, here we are three and a half years later, and, uh, and what we have is a, a 590-page book, uh, which I think introduces a lot of new information and hopefully we'll uh, we'll cover some of that today. I think uh, what's interesting about the book and, and you sort of alluded to the fact that a lot's been said about this era, you know, we're uh, here on our podcast, we watch episode by episode and we're kind of adding, I think a little historical context, but we're kind of adding a humorous fan perspective. So that's kind of where we're coming mm-hmm. at it from. Uh, but certainly, you know, there's been books written uh, the death of WCW obviously being, you know, the most famous one. Uh, but I think the smart thing that you've done here with, with Nitro, your book, that really sets it apart from the crowd of, of all the voices that are talking about WCW uh, in this era is you approach it really as a corporate entity, which I think is something that's missing a lot from the conversation uh, when we talk about WCW. I think people – by and large, are very familiar with the WWE model, where you have a figurehead. You have Vince McMahon, or sort of transitioning into into Paul Levesque now, where you have one figure who's really signing off on every decision. And a lot of times, when we talk about WCW, we try to ascribe it that same, uh, you know, that same model. We we look at Bischoff and we see this as Vince McMahon versus Eric Bischoff, or kind of in Vince McMahon's mind, Vince McMahon versus Ted Turner. But what you've done really well in Nitro is you've contextualized uh, WCW as a corporate entity, as a division of a much larger public-facing company uh, that was answerable to a lot of different departments, marketing, finance, etc. And I think that's what really – your book offers that different perspective. It it really offers a lot of new context that I don't think readers are familiar with. And I'm curious, what was – was that something that you decided from the get-go or was that something that developed sort of as you started the project? It's a a very good question. I think it's a pretty astute sort of observation as well in terms of what makes this this book different from some of the other accounts that are out there. And I think, you know, at this point, it's probably important to emphasize – you know, if people are wondering, um, okay, where does this new information come from? Well, in excess of 120 people were interviewed for this book, um, some of them being former TBS employees, some of them uh, people who work for WCW specifically. There were also an array of people that I spoke to um, on an off-the-record basis. There are some people who was sort of involved on the periphery of WCW's business that would have interfaced with the company um, to one degree or another, who were quoted in the book as well. Um, so, so that's really where a lot of the new information comes, in addition to the fact that I was lucky enough to have access to a lot of uh, of the company materials that, that had sort of been under lock and key for the best part of a couple of decades, uh, which was very helpful in terms of cross-referencing information as well. But to get back to your question, um, yes, it, it did become fairly obvious to me very early on that the most interesting element of the narrative, at least at least to me, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that you know if you're enthusiastic about something, generally speaking, that will sort of translate to your readers or listeners or whoever as well, was the relationship between WCW and its parent company, Turner Broadcasting. 
And uh, once I had that sort of overarching theme in mind, and I think there are some other themes throughout the book that are sort of constant in their focus as well. But uh, once that particular relationship and that dynamic um, was was established clear in my mind, and once I really started to, to speak with some of the people um, who were very um, – very involved and were integral to the decision-making process at a corporate level. That's what really um, gave me, in, in large part, the, the sort of driving focus of the book. So I, I don't think it was something that I decided upon beforehand, but it, it was something that after conducting just a few interviews, um, sort of several months into the project, I, I kind of said to myself, okay, I, I know exactly what this book is now. I saw in the acknowledgement section uh, that you mentioned that the first interview for this book, and correct me if I'm wrong, was conducted in 2015. Uh, I'm curious how much work had gone into it before uh, that point and when you decided that you were ready to start interviewing sort of the the primary sources, the principal actors involved here, uh, how did you go about um, cultivating those relationships, reaching out to these, a lot of them are, are public facing people like an Eric Bischoff where you can hop on, I'm not saying this is how it happened, but you could in theory hop on Twitter and strike up a relationship with Eric Bischoff, but someone who is, for instance, um, the, uh, Dick Cheatham, the, the WCW controller, uh, uh, how do you reach out to someone who is, you know, a private citizen who this is just a corporate job that they held 20 years ago? Well, that's an excellent question again, Tim. And, and I think this may surprise you, uh, but it's it's true. When, when I actually embarked on this project, I didn't have a single contact or relationship with anyone who either worked in WCW specifically or for the larger corporate entity, that being TBS. So I really was starting from scratch and starting with a blank canvas. And I would say, you know, I probably did sort of six months or so of my own research in terms of thinking about how is this book going to be different? Uh, what sort of information am I going to be looking to uncover? Who is who are some of the people that I'd like to speak with? And I don't particularly remember why, but it was uh, Rob Garner, who was one of the VPs at WCW, who uh, ultimately was the first person that I interviewed. And I think it's kind of like a domino effect where, you know, if you're sort of going into a world, let's say, uh, and you're sort of investigating the, the inner workings of a, of a particular organization, even one that is obviously defunct now, I think you've got to assume that word is going to travel fairly quickly that, you know, there's, there's someone out there who's asking questions and trying to aggregate information. Um, but actually, that can work into your advantage because if those initial few conversations go well and word starts to travel that this is a legitimate project or at least you know perceived to be, uh, and you know this person seems to have a focus in mind and is sort of earnest in terms of finding out what happened, uh, it really does become a lot easier to get in touch with uh, with other people after that point. Having said that, you know some of the more higher profile names and some of the more sort of reclusive or elusive people that are interviewed in the book. It's not an exaggeration to say, and again, I, this might sound ridiculous, but there were a couple of people I can think of specifically where you're talking about maybe 12 to 18 months uh, between the point of first contact and then actually getting them to agree to be interviewed. 
And of course, we're not talking about daily contact. It's not, not as if you're going back and forth with them on a daily basis or even a weekly basis. You know, it's sporadic. Um, but you have right. to put yourself, you, you know, you, you have to put yourself in the shoes of some of these people. What incentive, strictly speaking, uh, do they have to talk about some of this stuff? Um, so it, it, it did take a little bit of, um, of work uh, when it came to, to some of the more, I would say, higher profile sources. Yeah, I wonder if working into your advantage was a sense of, especially as you build a reputation as, as a legitimate project, um, I sort of think of the example of when WWE was producing a Bret Hart special, and Bret Hart at a certain point realized that, and this was when he was uh, not on friendly terms with the company, and he realized he could come back and participate in that special, or he could wind up with something that was the Bret Hart version of the Ultimate Warrior takedown documentary that they had done a few years earlier. And I wonder if um, some th- someone like right. an Eric Bischoff maybe is, is reticent to participate in a project like yours, but then hears of all the names that are going to be in this book and realizes it's really in his benefit to make sure that he can provide a voice that sort of defends some of his thoughts, some of his actions. Uh, I, I really... Uh, of all the people involved, I was I was probably most impressed that you were able to get kind of an on-the-record uh, interview or a series of interviews with Eric Bischoff to get him quoted directly in the book. I think that's that's definitely part of it. I think you're you're absolutely right. I think perhaps also another thing that helped was um, the the fact that, you know that that I've done a little bit of writing before, so my background is is in academia primarily. Uh, so you know, I've I've taught courses in in sports science and sports management and things like that, and sort of dabbled in terms of you know contributing to some textbooks and kind of you know writing in a couple of obscure publications as well. So I think the fact that you know whenever you have um, somewhat of um, I, I, I won't go as far to say a pedigree. You know, that sounds a bit pretentious, but you, you have something to, to to sort of cite in terms of. Um, you know, why you're actually embarking on a writing project. You know, it wasn't as if I'd never written anything before, although certainly not of this nature. So I think that combined with, you know, some of the, some of the word traveling within people who um, work for the organization. I will also say that on, on the specific um, sort of topic of, of, uh, of Eric Bischoff, at that stage, you know, there weren't, uh, he was probably one of the first 20 or 30 people interviewed for the book. And he was interviewed, uh, you know, when we first, uh, first had our conversation, he was interviewed before a lot of people. So it, it wasn't as if I had this sort of huge list to, 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 uh, to show off to him and say, you know, you should be part of this. And, you know, I, obviously there are going to be, um, different interpretations of the book. People are going to, read some of the stories about different characters and kind of make up their own minds. Um, what I will say though, and I think I, as you talked about it, I think uh, this was referenced in the acknowledgements. I'm extremely grateful to everyone who gave up their time for this project because without them, quite literally this book wouldn't have been able to, to have been written. So, you know, I had the chance to, to speak with him for about four or five hours over two separate days and really go in, in depth about a lot of topics, some of which he, he hadn't talked about before um, and so I think you have to respect that and you have to be appreciative of that because, you know, we're talking about things that um, haven't always been, you know, um, have been portrayed to varying degrees of accuracy, have been portrayed to varying degrees of um, in terms of their sort of uh, positivity, let's say. 
Um, and I think, you know, I was just very transparent in letting people know, look, this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm my allegiance here is to the truth. Um, I, you know, I'm not interested in um, sort of shaping the, the, the story a particular way. Uh, what I'm interested in is getting to the heart of actually what happened here and wherever that leads me is wherever that leads me. And as you can see in the book, you know, it, it, it kind of uh, took me in a lot of different directions. Well, and I think that certainly comes through because certainly uh, there are things that someone will say and there could be a corresponding paragraph where someone offers contradictory information. But I never feel like the book is pushing me towards one particular narrative. It's it's giving me all of the information um when it comes to something where there's maybe not a a clearly objective truth that we're going to be able to get to. So I, I really liked that the book sort of presented two sides of an argument. You can decide as the reader where you feel the credibility lies, where you feel that truth is. Uh, even even uh, subjects that are maybe kind of universally looked, at, looked down on might not be the right word. But for example, of Vince Russo, there's a lot of decisions Vince Russo made – involving WCW that are near universally panned, but I felt like the book was very fair to him. There was a number of people talking about his creative genius, his enthusiasm, and the ways that there were factors that worked against him that perhaps didn't allow that creativity to flourish in world championship wrestling the way that he would have liked. I think so. And I think, you know, the way that, um, that, particular outcome that you're talking about there in terms of some people's reflections on Vince Russo, the way that that sort of came about was quite simply, you know, asking an open-ended question to people. Because of course, you know, when you're interviewing someone about their time at WCW, assuming that their tenure overlapped with, you know, that time frame, that sort of 99, 2000 time frame, at some point in the conversation, you're going to talk about the creative end of the product. Uh, you know whether or not they were they were a performer or whether they were working in finance or marketing or production or whatever, and you know generally speaking, people will bring up you know names to you and they'll sort of uh, proactively go in that direction. And you know what, what you try to do, I think, when you're doing sort of any nonfiction work is you you ask open ended questions and you listen. I think that's the most important thing. And wherever people choose to take that question is is totally their prerogative. And as you saw in the book, there were some people who uh, would offer their opinions on subjects like that, and they would, you know, tend to focus on perhaps the, the positive elements or other people who are quite damning in their criticism. Uh, but I think as much as is possible, you try to bring in what is the objective data? What, what do the numbers actually tell us about a particular person uh, and, and their success or a particular initiative and its success? And then, as you said, you, you let the leader, uh, let the reader rather, uh, take away from that what they will. So, you know, I, I, when we're talking about this subject, obviously the, the the footage is out there for everyone to see. The shows have been discussed and, and dissected so many times. Um, you know, I, I think uh, podcasts like your, 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 the one that you have um, are, are awesome. You know, um, I think, you know, what, what you guys do is very entertaining and, and, and definitely needed and, and brings a lot of joy to people who, who watched the show back then. Uh, what I try to do with my book is, you know, kind of take the perspective of, look, uh, we don't need another book kind of recapping what happened week to week in the nitro era, you know, that stuff is, is, is out there in terms of um, the book format or in, you know, online articles and so on. So let's try to tell maybe a broader story here uh, while also not neglecting those, those on-screen moments as well. So, um, so while you were saying that, you know, just to, to wrap up this answer, that's kind of um, 
what got me thinking along those lines in terms of, you know, sometimes you'll um, introduce a set of responses about a particular issue and you'll have some people taking one side, some people taking another side. And, you know, in, in every case, I can say in this book, that simply comes from asking you know, an open-ended question, and then letting people uh, tell their story. And, and in the case of Vince Russo, you know, some people were complimentary, some people were not, uh, you know, and then obviously the book brings in the, the numbers relative to his various um, tenures, because really he had three sort of separate, uh, you know, runs at WCW, if you really think about it, uh, which the book goes into. And then from there, people can, uh, can make up the, their uh, own minds, really. Now, you alluded a little bit to this uh, earlier, your writing background. I, I kind of wanted to ask about that because there are aspects of the book which are – I would describe them as almost straight reporting where there's there's direct facts, there's nice quotes, there's a very uh, lengthy sources section in the back of the book and, and all that is fantastic. But there's also chapters where we sort of are given almost a – narrative nonfiction tone where we're describing things almost from the perspective of a DDP uh, when he's reflecting on a conversation that he had with Dusty Rhodes and his commitment to himself that he would be a world champion within a a certain number of years. Uh, And I feel like those chapters really show a flair for a different kind of writing. So you almost have within this one fairly lengthy tome, you almost have two different styles of writing. Um, And it's, it's great as a reader because it, that alternate tone can keep you engaged uh, as you're reading through the book. What is your background in writing? Have you written, you know, in sort of a narrative sense as well as uh, journalistically or academically, or, or was there a conscious choice to kind of write in two different styles like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that, Tim. I think what that comes from quite simply, and I'm sure you probably think about this, you know, uh, when you're doing your podcasts is as much as, as is possible, you you want to try to bring variety into play because you know you try to put yourself in the shoes or, or in in the mindset of the person who's actually consuming this thing that you've created, and you don't want to fall into a particular pattern where every single chapter is kind of following you know the, the same structure uh, one chapter after the next. So that's really where that came from is kind of sitting back and thinking, okay, I know at this stage in the book now i would like to introduce you know a ddp or i'd like to introduce a scott hall or a kevin nash um you know how can i do this in a way that's actually interesting without just kind of reciting um you know the the facts that we've all sort of come to uh come to come to accept as being part of their story let's say um but as far as my writing background as, as i talked about um you know, I've, I've mainly done academic writing, uh, mostly when I was in the UK prior to coming over to the States. This was the first book that I, that I wrote. Um, and, uh, you know, never really approached, uh, or never, never really written anything like this before. Um, but, you know, over the years, many people had sort of said, look, you need to write something because you seem to have, you know, I guess a, a knack for it to some extent. Um, and, um, you know, I, I tell you, Tim, a lot of times when you're working on something like this, I'm sure you can relate as well. You know, a lot of times you feel like this is going to sound very <laughs> sort of cliche and maybe kind of, uh, I don't know, off the wall, but you, you kind of feel like the book is writing itself. Like once you once you get into a bit of a groove and, you know, I would have these long days where I'd be working on the book and, you know, it is 180,000 words after all, 56 chapters. And, you know, you get to a point where you really get into get into a good flow and, 
you know, you, you start sort of connecting all of these different things in your head and thinking back to conversations that you've had and, uh, and, and, and different things that you've, you've learned from your various sources. And then you sort of go home at the end of the day and say, you know, wow, that, you know, that, that chapter kind of introduced so much and you're not quite sure how, how it was done. I mean, it's, you know, again, it, it sounds kind of lame to say it that way, but it is true. I mean, there were some, um, chapters where, you know, from the start, you kind of know exactly how you're going to begin, exactly how you're going to end. And there are other chapters where it's, you know, you, you obviously have an outline of where you're going, but sometimes you look back on it and say, you know, I'm actually quite proud of, um, of the story that I was telling there or the, or the way that I actually, um, sort of communicated those, those things. Um, so again, hopefully that wasn't uh, too much of a long winded answer for you, but that's uh, kind of how it worked. Was there any particular new information or surprising revelation during the, the book that caused you to really sit down and say, wow, I can't believe that, that I'm breaking this information, that, that I'm going to be the one who's getting this out there for the first time. There were, there's, there's several things in the book. Uh, obviously I'm not going to go into them in tremendous amount of detail, but sure that I would, I would sort of classify again, at the risk of being hyperbolic as revelations. Um, I think specifically, you know, there's there's something right at the beginning of the book, uh, which for sure has, has definitely not been talked about. There's um, a lot of detail at the end of the book in regards to the WCW sale and specifically the cancellation of WCW. Yes, absolutely. Uh, where a, you know a ton of new information is introduced, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you something else, Tim. There's there's a very important detail, which is about sort of two thirds into the book, um, which I'm not sure if it's kind of gone over some people's heads or whether, you know, there's just kind of so much there that maybe um, it didn't particularly stand out. But without sort of citing it directly, you know, there's there's a, a story that's told about two thirds into the book, which really, when I heard that story, it did make me sit back and say, well, this kind of changes quite a lot in terms of how we think about the, the WCW and, and WWF uh, ratings competition. Um, and it's been interesting to me that it doesn't seem like, you know, although I'm, I'm very grateful for all of the great feedback so far and, and the reviews that we've had and so on, um, maybe it's people being generous and they don't want to kind of spoil that. I don't know, but um, I think that's, there, you know, there is an overlooked detail in there, which really is very, very interesting to me, and for sure has not been uh, has not been picked up on before. So I'll be interested to see if people can pick that up. I uh, I won't uh, state exactly my favorite two revelations. Uh, one may have been information that was out there, but I think there's a very interesting uh, bit of information that Eric Bischoff drops about the very famous main event of Star K ninety seven. Uh, that was something that I hadn't heard said before, mm. so I, I would encourage readers to pick up the book and look for that. And the other is is maybe not as impactful of a moment, but uh, there is a story involving the remains of a deceased WCW referee uh, that <laughs> I oh, could not, I had to reread that paragraph several <laughs> times to make sure I understood what was happening. Oh man, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and those are you know those those little details. I think are what makes you know a, a book like this. To be honest with you, Tim, I think um, that was something that was really a rewarding part of this process was collating all of these different memories from people. Because I think one thing to emphasize as well is 
although we've heard this time period discussed a lot, obviously over the years, um, you know, especially back then, um, with with WCW being part of this this wider corporate entity, for better or worse. And if you read the book, you'll see that actually, you know, there were a lot of downsides to it as well as some positives. But you know, it took uh, a very large number of people to produce these shows and to market these shows and to you know, be involved with the day-to-day running of the company and, and to try to sell ads on the shows and so on. And all of these people have their, their own particular recollections and memories that stand out to them um, that when you sort of combine them all together uh, makes makes for what I think is is, is pretty interesting um, reading. So it was definitely fun to kind of sprinkle in those those little things while still advancing the narrative as well. And that particular story that you said you know, you mentioned that you had to read over it a few times. I had to rewind <laughs> my uh, tape a few times and say, "Hold on, let me let me let me just get this totally straight." What's what what happened here? So yeah, that one that one was pretty crazy. Now, of all the personalities that you spoke with in in putting the book together, uh, you've got certainly the ones we know about who are who are big personalities: uh, Eric Bischoff, Kevin Nash, Kevin Sullivan, as well as some fun behind the scenes personalities as well. I'm curious who. Who was kind of the most fun to interact with? Who who do you feel like could almost be the, the subject of their own book someday? Well, I'm going to throw a name here that, that probably isn't uh, that well known, but uh, you know I do talk about it in the acknowledgments. Former president of the TBS network, a guy by the name of Bill Burke, who incidentally actually, uh, well, he essentially wrote Ted Turner's autobiography, the, mo- the most recent one that's called Call Me Ted. Uh, you know, Bill Burke basically uh, went out there and did the interviews and collated the information and, of course, wrote it in Ted's voice. Uh, but he was basically the person who did that. Um, I had the chance to, to meet with him in person. And, and that's something, you know, that um, people may not be aware of is that there were some people that I had the, the chance to, to actually go and see and spend some time with. Um, and that was one of the more enjoyable experiences of writing this book, just um, getting his perspective not only on on WCW but also how things worked um, at Turner and just you know the, the sort of media climate uh, back then in the nineties and and his memories of it of it and how this all kind of fit into the the cultural landscape and and many other things that we talked about you know he was just a very enthusiastic very positive um, very approachable guy and. I was actually talking about this uh, with Neil um, a a few hours ago, actually. That's one of the the nicest things that's come out of this this project has been able to to interact with so many people, you know, across the country and even across the world and uh, and actually, you know, forge some some good relationships with people or at the very least, you know, have an encounter with them that that you actually uh, really look back fondly on and, and maybe even, you know, learn quite a bit from as well. Um, so I, I would say him and, 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 you know, to perhaps introduce a name that is more, uh, relevant to, to this audience, obviously, you know, whenever I had the chance to speak with Neil Pruitt, the voice of the NWO, former feature producer with WCW, those were always really, um, enjoyable interactions. Um, you know, Buff Bagwell was one of the, uh, more entertaining interviews that I did, uh, because I think, my my sense of speaking with him and you know again like with every everyone else i just you know want to commend him for um for giving me his time and and being open to talk about this stuff he he was really uh, quite kind about that and you know the fact that he at least based on my perception um 
seems to you know be at a point where he's very sort of open about everything he's uh, very entertaining to listen to in terms of being a storyteller and there are some you know anecdotes from him in the book which i think are particularly enjoyable um so so that was that that was that was cool to you know to hear you know there are a lot of people that once you called them up uh you got the sense that they were kind of waiting for someone to produce a project like this that in- encompassed so many people's memories and, and recollections of that of that time frame and that seemed to be the the case with him um he was very interested in in, in talking and uh and it turned out to be a great interview you know there was a sort of a minor character who came pretty late in the story who i was pretty fascinated in and i thought it was a really good get and there was some new information that i was not aware of uh and that was one time girlfriend of gene simmons lenita erickson uh, I thought that her mm-hmm. contributions uh, in terms of her stories and sort of the maneuverings that she was uh, undertaking along with a few other people I won't name in order to keep the mystery of the book alive, uh, that she was undertaking at the end of the WCW story was really fascinating. And and she was not someone I was at all familiar with reading the book. But at the end, I was just thinking, you know, that's someone who seems like they have a bevy of interesting stories behind their life. Absolutely, and and that was an interesting one because it, it did take quite some time to get in touch with uh, with Miss Erickson. Um, that that was um, you know definitely a challenge. Um, but once I was able to to get in touch with her uh, again, that would be one of the the interviews that really stands out. To go back to your previous question um, in terms of speaking with her, and, and as you mentioned, she was very forthcoming with um, with with everything that happened. You know, from her perspective and and her sort of memories of. Being involved with WCW at a very chaotic and, and very confusing um, and, and tumultuous time, and uh, you'd, you'd be amazed. You know, I, I've been getting obviously a lot of emails since the, the book came out, and I'm so thankful to, to readers who have taken the time to do that. And uh, you know, you'd be amazed at the number of people who have brought up her name and, and said, you know, that was something that really threw me for a loop at the end of the book. So, um, you know, that, that's just another reason, I suppose, to uh, to check out the book. All right. Well, my last question for you, uh, sort of an existential one as we look at the entire history of WCW. And I, I want to sort of look at, at part of the title of your book here. Again, want to plug it in full. It's Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. And I want to focus in on that word inevitable. Uh, do you feel like that there are certain things that were sort of baked into the structure of WCW that did in fact make its demise truly inevitable or were there a few key decisions? And I know there's, there's just so many factors at play that, that some parts of this are maybe impossible, but was it truly an an inevitable collapse or was there, were there a few things you could see where there was maybe a decision here, a choice there that, that had they made those, we could still be talking about the great two company wrestling boom in, in 2018. Wow, I think we could <laughs> take this this question in many different directions. It's a very good one. Um, look, let, let's not not kid ourselves. You know, I, I think one thing that, that hopefully the book achieves is is trying to remove as much subjectivity as possible. You know, I'd like to think it's um, you know, and then the feedback that I've got thus far is you know people have appreciated the sort of fairness and objectivity of, of the book. Um, but obviously, you know, as I said, let's let's not kid ourselves. The the on screen product, um, you know, especially in those last couple of years, you know, again, purely bringing my opinion to play. You know, 
obviously didn't stack up to the early years of Nitro, let's say, or you know, or many other great eras in the history of wrestling. So I think obviously there were a lot of mistakes that were made from that standpoint. Um, and it's tempting to to look at some of those and, and sort of categorize them as being calamitous, and indeed some of them were. Uh, however, I would, I would also sort of stress that, as we know, you know, WCW didn't exist in a vacuum. So it was obviously part of um, this 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 huge broadcasting empire, and and as such, um, you know, never really had a, a full sort of uh, degree of control over its destiny. Which, which obviously is, is a stark contrast to the situation in terms of its its competition. So, with that being said, you know I, I think what the the subtitle of the book speaks to is the fact that as long as WCW was a Turner entity, quite frankly, having spoken to you know 120 people and spoken to to other people on an off the record basis and and everything else that we've talked about today, you know my sense is. WCW at some point, as long as it was um, under the umbrella of Turner Broadcasting, would have gone away. Uh, obviously, the the book documents in 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 great detail the amount of opposition internally to wrestling being on the Turner airwaves. You know, let let's take apart or let's put to the side, you know, WCW specifically. Just the notion of wrestling being part of their programming schedule was something that was anathema to many of the executives. Um, now, you may say, well, when Fusion Media Ventures uh, came into the picture, uh, you know, TBS were able to sort of divest themselves operationally of WCW, but but also still keep it on the on the programming schedule. So, you know, does, does that kind of uh, indicate perhaps that, you know, there was some interest to, to, to keep it going for a while? Uh, w- without giving away, you know, too much of the ending of the book, um, y- you'll see why, you know, that notion never would have actually come to fruition. Um, you know, obviously one of the factors at play was the, the rebranding efforts, which had actually been been going on. Um, and I'm talking specifically about TNT now, right? Since since sort of September of, of '99, you know, so they'd spent 18 months doing um, market research on, on how to position TNT and, and, and obviously TBS as well. And the sense that I got, and I, I kind of heard this from a number of people, was you know WCW was not in the long-term vision as a Turner entity. Um, and you know it, it would have gone away at some, at some point in time. Now, if you're wondering why you know, the Fusion deals uh, fell apart specifically, Jamie Kellner is quoted in the book. So you can kind of get his perspective on that. But it was a key provision or a key condition um, in the Fusion deal, which actually sort of forced his hand in a way and kind of made possible um, a couple of, of outcomes that were, were actually very beneficial as far as TBS were concerned. And you can, you can read all about that in the chapter. So I suppose, you know, to, to again, to return to your question, um, I do think, you know, for all of the sort of creative missteps and disorganization and, and the chaos, quite frankly, that seemed to envelop the organization, especially in this last couple of years, um, as long as WCW was a Turner entity, you know, it, its demise, quite frankly, was um, was inevitable, which is sort of a sobering reality, I think, for, for people who really enjoyed uh, the programming and the competition back then. I think that's a, a very fair 
hypothesis. It's certainly one that I think I, I tend to agree with. And I encourage everyone to read the book and, and see kind of how you can get from A to Z, how you can look at this company and for all the success that they were having at the height of the NWO era throughout 97 and, and 98 and see kind of how there were issues baked in. And again, uh, more as a corporate entity and not strictly as a wrestling company, which uh, uh, I want to stress is really how you need to think of this uh, and really see how, how sort of there was nowhere for it to go but down. Uh, and I think this book just does an excellent job. Again, I want to make sure that all of you pick it up. You should read it yourselves. It's Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. You can find it at wcwnitrobook.com. You can find it on Amazon. You can pick up a digital copy. You can get – I've got the uh, soft cover. It's got a great cover with Kevin Nash powerbombing Goldberg. I think it looks absolutely fabulous. You can also listen to Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. I think you guys have uh, been on hiatus a little bit, but you're coming back soon. Is that right? That's right, Tim. Yeah, we should have uh, something up. I'm not sure exactly when this is going up, but we should have something uh, about three or four days after recording this sort of – I'm not sure what day that is exactly, August the 5th, August the 6th. We have been on a little bit of a hiatus, uh, but we will be back with an update. Um, if we, if I could, Tim, I know we're kind of low on time here. Could I just throw out one more just example just to sort of illustrate what we were just talking about? Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to, you know, as you were sort of saying that, I just kind of um, thought back to, to something in the book, which I think is really an il- illustrative example um, of, you know, why this sort of collapse was inevitable. And I'm sure you probably picked up on this as well. So, the, the, you know, there's a section in the book which talks about the very convoluted and, and, and complicated and, and sort of um, uh, just nonsensical way that Turner organized its books. And, you know, the fact that, you know, when we think about sort of measuring the financial performance of a particular business, we think about, okay, revenues and expenses. And, you know, that's derived from that what we may. And, you know, the, the book sort of goes into detail why it wasn't that simple when it came came to WCW or for that matter, any division within Turner. And you can read read all about that. But I think one example that really shows kind of how, uh, how much of a bind, let's say, um, WCW was in as long as it was under that corporate structure is the fact that... Uh, you know, there, there are accountants in the book that talk about um, when they would do their forecasting, okay, for the following year's pay-per-view events, for example, okay, they would look at the previous year's numbers and then and then make an estimate based on that, right? So, so right. I, yeah, I remember ex- – I and I'm laughing because I work in a corporate environment hmm. and I've been down this road. Please continue. I, I, I know exactly where you're sure, going. Sure. So, so you'll know better than anyone then. So, you know, they, they talk about the fact that typically speaking, you know, that they sort of would budget for maybe a 3 to 5% increase year to year, okay? So, you know, let's say, uh, you know, Starcade sells 600,000 uh, – gets 600,000 pay-per-view buys – then maybe maybe we'll budget for sort of six hundred and thirty thousand the following year, for example, right? Um, well, the sort of caveat to that, and and obviously that in and of itself, when you think about a business like wrestling, could be very sort of problematic. But the 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 the, the sort of wider issue there is the fact that if you had a particular pay per view that really exploded in popularity one year, so let's take for example. 
uh, you know, and I, I know we're not holding up sort of like the, the beacon of WCW pay-per-views here, but like Jay Leno, okay, wrestling at Road Wild, right? Sure. Um, obviously, you know, his involvement led to a pretty big increase year to year in terms of what Road Wild did. So now from an accounting point of view, and I'm talking about the Turner financial people here, not necessarily the WCW people, you know, they're looking at this and they're saying, okay, well, now we have a new baseline for what Road Wild uh, should be achieving next year. So if you really think about it in those terms, you know, and, and again, the book goes into a lot more detail than that. Um, but you'll see why that sort of um, understanding or, or lack thereof of, you know, the wrestling business and how it works and, and how, you know, you're, you're sort of in, inevitably going to have fluctuation, especially when it comes to some of those sort of less popular or, or uh, you know, non-traditional pay-per-view events. Um, you'll, you'll see why there's just such a chasm between uh, where their knowledge level needed to be and where it actually was. Now, alternatively, just to, to wrap this up quickly, you could take the perception that, you know, perhaps that was a deliberate uh, tactic. Uh, you know, may, maybe, uh, and I think some people comment on this in the book, maybe, uh, you know, that, that was done purposefully um, so that, you know, they could possibly show that, well, WCW, you know, made X number of dollars in profit last year, but in the same month this year, actually, they've, they've lost a certain amount of, of, of money. Um, and I'll let the readers sort of read the book and make up their own minds on that. But I, I did just want to add that to what we were talking about, just in case people uh, were wondering exactly what we were saying. Um, but uh, but I'll, I'll leave it to you to to, to sign us off, Tim. But I, I do really appreciate the time. Yeah, I, I, that's a great example, because I think if you're a wrestling fan, the story of WCW may be a tragedy. If you are a wrestling fan and someone that has worked in the corporate world, it is maybe more of a tragio-comedy. And that, that is a fantastic <laughs> example of why. Uh, Guy Evans, thank you so much for taking the time uh, here late on a, on a school night. We both have kids. We both have day jobs. And I just sincerely appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. You're very welcome. <laughs>